Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. What's going on here is beyond normal. It's completely extraordinary in a very positive way. Business brings the world together. It may be quite brutal, it may be quite you know, simple, it may not be very intellectual or, or refined, but there's something about the entrepreneurship. There are only two kinds of people, that the ones that are discouraged by failure and the ones that are encouraged by failure. And that's what makes the difference. It's Innovation in Europe by Project Kazimierz. Now another episode with your hosts Richard Lucas and Samuel Cook. Hello again, Project Kazimierz listener. My name is Sam Cook. Uh, here with my co-host as always. How are you doing, Richard? Uh, very well, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, good, great to have you. And we're going to get straight into this content here because um, we have a, a very uh, short time window to get great stuff out of two uh, BBC uh, broadcasters, technology journalists, Gareth Mitchell and Bill Thompson, and they're both technology writers. And what's particularly interesting today uh, that I'd like to explore is, is, is the technology scene in Europe, because uh, we've, you know, we've talked a lot about this podcast about Krakow and Silicon Valley, but I'd like to get a little bit more in depth on, on how technology writers in Europe see the overall landscape and specifically how Poland fits into that. So, uh, Garrett, I'm going to toss this one over to you first. Um, give me a quick comparison of technology in Europe versus the United States. Uh, well, we, we report on technology from around the world. Uh, so, uh, and that, of course, includes Europe and the United States. Uh, from my side of the things, I suppose, skating across the technology landscape, if that's not mixing too many metaphors, as I do as a, a journalist more than a, a practitioner. Um, I, I mean, maybe there's, there's more of a, a sense of, um, sort of sharing that, you know, Silicon Valley mentality that I suppose is synonymous with the United States. And of course, we're seeing now, albeit manifested in different ways in the likes of uh, Berlin. Um, I suppose that's one difference. Uh, Certainly something we've spoken about on the programme is the regulatory environment. And so, for instance, when it comes to people's um, privacy and rights online, then I think it's fair to say that the Europeans, uh, you know, through their uh, European Parliament and Commission, have more regulations to, I suppose, safeguard the uh, the individual. So the, the tech landscape in Europe is more regulated than in the United States. Um, but certainly when you get, to, I say, down to the level, and that sounds almost disparaging, but, you know, at the, at the, I suppose at the grassroots level of walking into a hack space or a lab, as I sometimes have the, you know, the privilege of doing, whether it's in, uh, let's think, in San Francisco, where I've been many times, or in Italy or Germany here in Europe, when you actually speak to the geeks then it kind of feels the same, <laughs> you know, which is a huge oversimplification. So, you know, of course, there are differences between the United States and, and Europe, but technology by its very global nature, you know, means there's probably more in common between the two places than, than otherwise, Bill. Um, I, I actually think um, there are significant differences. Um, partly it's that the scale and size of the US market means um, thinking about the US dominates the, the way 
um, European, Polish, British, French, whatever, startups and companies consider their world in a way that thinking about Europe doesn't necessarily even interest many US startups. The number of US startups you'll get who don't even have a European strategy aren't thinking about the separate regulatory environment, as Gareth mentioned. All those things is just enormous. Um, it goes back to a comment that um, a well-known venture capitalist and investor Herman Hauser made to me some years back, which is that what he sees in the European startup scene is a lot of chickens wanting to be the biggest chicken in the coop when the fox arrives instead of a lot of small foxes. And so what you got are companies that maybe want to be acquired by a big US player and don't perhaps see their own scene as being big enough for their desires, to, for, for them to grow, because they think the only way they're going to get investment is that way. There's certainly an enormous amount of innovation. And I would say the creativity is, yeah, is no different, if not better within Europe, because you're not so stymied by that broken, decadent Silicon Valley culture that so distorts technology thinking as to make many of the things that are produced not only unimaginable but unethical. So, so you, you do get the, 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 the creativity, but in terms of the business perspective, I think there are real, there are real differences. I love the point that you brought up, Bill, about the broken, decadent Silicon Valley culture. I'm, I'm, I'm in Poland, and I'm struck by the idolization of Silicon Valley. And The Economist just published an article about Silicon Valley being um, such a powerful force, but also needed to be very careful uh, going forward. And, and the reason I moved to Eastern Europe and Poland specifically is it feels like um, the land of – you know, I say the East is the new West because – you know, everyone migrated east towards California, and now it's the softest, most un-Western place in the world where they're worried about what kind of latte they're going to have and, and the coffee beans. Whereas here in Poland, it feels real and raw and a lot of growth and a little bit of danger with the Russians there. So I, I think there's a huge opportunity for Europe as more and more of the young generation knows English to create that common market, uh, that common understanding and regulatory environment. And, and I, I think we're going to see a bit of a change. Do you see the opportunity for Europe to create a unified mass market that European companies want to dominate rather than going straight to the U.S. after they master their like Polish market? Well, the destruction of um, Greek democratic control over its markets over the last few years by, by, by the uh, last few months by the Troika doesn't augur well for the greater European project, does it? You know, we, we, we can't look at technology in isolation from the other issues, the, the political and social issues that affect us, because that, you know, technology is just part of that broader framework now. So, so I think that being, I'm, I'm less optimistic about the European project than I was maybe a year ago, and therefore have to be less optimistic about the potential for overarching European technology. I think there are real possibilities because to some extent the technology can transcend national boundaries. So, for example, you don't necessarily need to be able to speak English to create a platform or an app or a service or a set of tools that will transform people's lives because the technologies we're using now are defiantly multilingual. So, so you can see how that sort of thing could start to have an impact. And it may well be that the bottom-up approach to building technology that meets people's needs, that makes them happier, more content, perhaps some of them richer, certainly you know, healthier, all those things, bubbles up into a society which still can't fully 
grasp the, the 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 larger European framework. You know, we're not moving towards the sort of federal Europe that we might have imagined at the time of the Maastricht Treaty or even at the Treaty of Rome. It's, it just seems to be stalled now, in part because of the problems with the eurozone. Given that's the case, anybody who's working in a startup or even in a, in a more established tech company has to adapt to that new political reality when they think about how the technologies they're trying to develop are going to be disseminated, are going to reach into the market, are going to change people's lives. And how the perception of the European projects has shifted. I've lived in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam in 1995, and in those days we had a paper called The European. I'm not sure if that's going anymore. <laughs> um, and I suppose one insight that I bring to the discussion about the European project and maybe cause for some optimism or hope maybe is uh, more on the science side than strictly technology and startups but uh, I was recently in Brussels uh, reporting on the uh, European Research Council and you know the funding that it's put in to um, to labs and in fact through individuals so giving the opportunity for um, often early career scientists running labs around Europe giving these people the opportunity to take quite sizable grants of a few hundred thousand or indeed you know the early you know kind of one or two million euro uh, to set up research and the money follows the researcher around so in one case there's a Croatian researcher we spoke to who actually chose for her own family reasons to want to be back in Zagreb and she took that money with her and I fear it might be a rare example but it's an example nonetheless of European money going into somewhere like Croatia that obviously for the time being has a smaller science base than Germany or the UK that said guess where most of that European money is going and of course it's into the countries that have the existing scientific infrastructure and that fund itself is actually being diminished slightly because the funds have been diverted towards a stimulus package that is well maybe going into the likes of Greece so mixed tidings from Europe in terms of science funding but it's an example maybe that that you're less likely to have in the united states in quite that way but but before before i mean i'm not used to being the most optimistic person in the conversation with my (laughs) my my twisted cynical personality but you know i think isn't very often the small european countries are forced to go into english as an export language in a way that americans do english because it's their home market but you know there's a company here from krakow called base which is number one in the world for mobile crm and it's an israeli is an israeli uh polish startup and they they kicked off in English with mobile first, and because the Polish market isn't that big, they 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 automatically think globally. And I I think that you know at one level being from an English speaking country is a, is a disadvantage because you know if, if you're in the translation business, then you know that the figs is French, Italian, German, Spanish, and CJK is Chinese, Japanese, Korean. But for a lot of American companies, you know, English is it. But so do, do you think that? It's a little too pessimistic to say that we're, we're held back. The, the single, I mean, the, the market isn't just Europe. If you're a technology startup, um, so I'm not saying we're held back. I'm saying that it is as well to be not to be optimistic about the European project if you are a EU tech company devising your strategy, because those assumptions are unlikely to be true. That doesn't mean you can't have a strategy that will be successful, and it will involve things like understanding how to deploy the English language, understanding those things. It's it's more trying to make the point that Gareth and I report about technology, not for its own sake ever, but because we're interested in how it affects people's lives, how it's integrated in the world. You know, the technology comes from the things we do. It doesn't always just shape the things we do. That's a beautiful... 
Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I know we don't have much time, but in a way, this is a podcast about a podcast because I'm not sure that um, Sam is yet a faithful listener. I know we were hearing before you came online, Sam, that 30 million people approximately listen to Click during a year, so it's slightly bigger traffic than Project Kashmir's. But the <laughs> the um, the existence of this podcast is partly due to the fact that I was very interested in the community-building aspects of what happens before and after the on-air uh, Click podcast. And could you just talk a little – and in a sense, that's – technology creating a community that couldn't have happened beforehand. Could you talk a bit about the, the history of that and whether that's typical for the BBC? Because in a sense, the, 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 the platform of the BBC gives you a global audience around which you can create a community. I, I don't know, and I, I, I'm a great fan of this, this, this sort of slightly odd uh, select group of people who listen before and after the, the, main, the main broadcast on air. And could you just tell people a bit about that? Um, yes, I mean, essentially, it's about creatively bending the rules and um, nobody in authority noticing until it was too late. Um, <laughs> so, so Click, uh, Go Digital as it was, uh, Digital Planet as it then was, is a very long-standing um, technology program on BBC World Service Radio. And we've been going for nearly 16 years now, so 15 years now, anyway, a bit. It feels like a lot longer sometimes. Um, and we were one of the first programs to be available as a as an RSS-enabled download or podcast, as we like to call them, uh, when the BBC started experimenting with this new medium. And the rules were very, very clear. You could only make available for download that which had been broadcast. And so that's what happened. We made a program which was 28 minutes long, and it was then made available to download to people's various fruit-labeled devices and other, and it became very popular. Um what we then realized was that, of course, that restriction on only stuff that had been broadcast was really quite arbitrary because we were in a studio and we record more stuff. And what happens is at the end of the show, the ROT, the recording of the transmission, is prepared, converted into appropriate file format MP3, and then sent to the BBC podcast machine, which makes it available to download. And nobody knows that they're the same length. So we started we started doing a little bit you of cheated. Stuff. You cheated. <laughs> we cheated. In that we thought, well, people who are coming to the podcast might want to know which date it's from, might want to know what we've been doing. So we just started talking a bit beforehand, and then we carried on talking afterwards. And we had a very amenable producer who perhaps didn't realise that what we were doing was bending the rules. And around the same time, another bickering on-air couple called Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo started doing the same sort of thing and i'm pretty sure at some point they said to their producer look click get away with it and we said to our producer look camera mayor get away with it and now even melvin brack is doing it exactly so others follow where where we led Um, and of course our format lends itself well to being able to do that being the bickering couple that we are Um, you know i've done other programs where i'm just the, the sole presenter and trying to do podcast extra material when you're sitting there talking to yourself is a challenge so being able to sit and have a chat and to go into further detail about our items and have a bicker with Bill is something that we can do into the minutes that uh, follow the podcast. Um, also, just a quick one on the audience. I think the 30 million figure, I'm not saying that all 30 million of them tune in to click. <laughs> or download the podcast. Yeah, I mean, they should do, obviously, if they know what's good for them. But uh, I, I think we, we do know that 30 million people a week listen to the World Service. And no, 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 it's slightly us. different. No, oh, um, According to Colin, our, our reach over a year... Is some somewhere around the twenty-five to thirty million, right on air? Yeah, on air. So, so 
they are, they're assuming that over a whole year, around that number of people will have listened to Click. Maybe only for once, maybe only for five minutes until they can find the off switch. But they've listened. So there we are. So there is some veracity in that figure. Um, and I think another thing to continue Bill's story about the opportunity that we had to bend the rules, to cheat, as you absolutely rightly put it, with the podcast, was um, just almost... A slight war of attrition in the sense that it, when we first started podcasting, we would maybe do an outro that was 30 seconds longer than the broadcast. Then maybe it went to 50 seconds and then we just kept you know, growing it until it ended up being maybe 10 extra minutes of podcaster waffling or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think the other thing, obviously, that was happening was the advent of the widespread use of the social media through Facebook and then Twitter. Uh, Bill was a particularly early adopter and then I copied Bill and, and certainly got onto Twitter. But um, we hadn't been on Facebook for that long when we were both sent an invite to the Digital Planet listeners group from a lovely chap in uh, a New Yorker who lives in Paris called Derek Erb. And without us knowing, he had set up a listeners group and about 100 of them were just sitting around on Facebook discussing items in the programme. And then Derek thought it might be quite nice to invite the hosts. So we turned up onto this group to find lots of people talking about our programme. And it's a bit like coming home and finding a party going on in your house with lots of people sitting around talking about your furniture and you just turn up there as a guest. And it still feels a bit like that, and I mean that in a good way. And, and they yeah. brought some decent wine to drink, but they're also drinking your gin. So, you know, it's like, you, know, you have this ambivalence about it. Yes, it's very, it's very interesting, this brand hijack, that football clubs have problems with unofficial fan clubs because they make T-shirts and they, they get closed down. But when you have an unofficial fan club that's not doing any harm to the brand, it, it, it's a very curious thing. I don't know if you know Clay Shirky, the, the professor of social media. I think he's in New York who, who wrote a book, Here Comes Every everyone who talked about the Grobenite fan club, which was formed on social media and started raising millions of dollars without having a legal, there's a, there's a pop singer called, I think pop singer or rock or whatever, a ballad singer called Josh Groban, adored by middle-aged housewives around the world. And they, they, they collected money for a birthday present for him, then realized that he was a multimillionaire. It made no sense to give him the money and gave it to it. It ended up going to a good cause. And you know, in that case, they lost control. Here in Krakow, we used to have Google for entrepreneurs before they decamped to Warsaw uh, to set up the Google campus Warsaw. And we thought of setting up a Google for entrepreneurs fan club with fan club written very small so that we could have Google events in Krakow after Google departed. And we might still do that. And we're, we're wondering if Google will sue us when we do a Google for entrepreneurs fan club event and just because <laughs> it's hard to see how they'll stop us. And in, uh, the, the other thing is that the, the, the Economist, my, my brother who works for The Economist, set up... Do you know about Yahoo groups? Do you remember them? I remember Yahoo groups launching. I remember them um, fading into, into insignificance in my life. I used to, I used to manage several. Yeah, because the Yahoo groups still exist. I checked it, and my, my brother set up a, a pre-the-days-of-blog, set up a Yahoo groups um, group for people to follow where he published his articles on The Economist. And after a bit, he was grandfathered, where all the Economist employees were told. I, I think, I, I, I have to say, I believe this is true, and there might be something not right about this account. This is from distant memory. But I think new journalists, when they sign up with The Economist now, are not allowed to launch their own their own blogs and things like that. It has to be under The Economist but of course, the Economist is a private a private company trying to make money for shareholders. So um, that, that it, but it's an area where I, su 
suspect that in you know as as we move forward, people become more and more aware of the value of the brand on which they're perching. And but you've already you've already launched and we're we're, you know, we're, we're not. I don't think Gareth and I would see this as being a, a brand in, in that sense. I mean, partly because, you know, we're, we're a, a program on BBC World Service, so, you know, the program could disappear at any time. Um, partly because the BBC you know, is keen to encourage a sense of community and, and to go where the conversations are, not yes. to pull things back. You know, we, we control the broadcast, we control the content of, of the podcast. So, you know, it's not like people can interfere in that. If there's conversation around it, Gareth and I as individuals head out there and participate in it in that way. So, so it's a slightly different thing for, from a, a company that's built up a brand. You know, if you think about the damage Twitter did when they tried to control the way developers interact, interact with the API and all this sort of stuff by being really hard on what they would and wouldn't allow, we're nowhere near that space in what we're doing. We're, we're just chatting to our friends. We are, and doing so under our own names. So on Twitter, I'm not, you know, Gareth-BBC. You know, I have my own Twitter name. Bill tweets under his own uh, Twitter name as well. So, uh, you know, the BBC really has, I suppose, no control over what we tweet as such. And, you know, from my own point of view, I'm just aware when I do go into the social media that uh, people who know me as a BBC presenter may be kind of reading my um, social media posting. So I'm, I suppose res- I try not to express too many political uh, views or what have you. But, uh, yeah, exactly. As Bill says, we don't really see it as a brand. We have the luxury of not having to see it as a brand. It's, you know, we, we enjoy doing the programme. And we're, one of the things we enjoy most about it is the interaction uh, with our very active and fantastic listeners. You know, it's, it sounds like a platitude, but uh, platitudes can be true. And one of the things I suggested when we met in that bar in London a few months ago, Gareth, was to organise a, a sort of Google Hangout um, where you could uh, not synchronise with the programme, where where Digital Planet, uh, Facebook, you know, your, your your podcast fan club or, or community could get together and we could discuss something. I I, I I don't really have a date in mind, but are you still potentially on to? I think you work. You, you thought that it wasn't a bad idea. I'm not, I'm not sure it's a good idea. It'll be an experiment, but do you? think at some stage in the future we might try and do that sometime this year i, I certainly hope so yeah so here's a commitment on this podcast uh, at least to try doing it I, i'd love to do that you know and yeah. to have almost like an event related you know an online event related to the program but separate from it having said that speaking of the program we're going to be on air in about half an hour and i can see rather twitchy looking faces the other side of the glass as the production team <laughs> give us that uh, look as if to looking, say, looking, can we just crack on and get ready for the show <laughs> Okay, well, perhaps, well, I'd like to just end say that I'm a a huge fan of your show. We'll obviously promote it to our enormous audience, so you'll go up from 30 million. Thank you. There'll be listeners 23 and 24. Whoa. Welcome aboard (laughs) to our little club. Yeah, and Sam, Sam, do you, do you just want to? So I'll say thank you very much for, for for everything you've done and taking part in this. Sam, do you want to close this from your point of view so we can hit, have the American accent in the picture? Exactly. Well, I think the British accent's much better to close out a show, but I uh, I've assumed that role. So, Garrett and Bill, I think the key lesson for um, the listeners of this podcast is we're a new podcast, but but Poland is a very immature um, podcasting scene. Uh, compared to what's going on in the English language. And a lot of the people I've introduced to podcasting have just been, you know, it's really opened up a new level of learning. And for anyone who's listening to this, most of our listeners are in the tech scene in Poland. The, the tech uh, intelligentsia, as I call it, um, should definitely subscribe to uh, the your show over on uh, 
the BBC site. Can you just give a specific URL where someone can go to uh, or what they can type into Google to make sure that they subscribe to your show? Yeah, I think just search for the BBC Click podcast. You won't BBC go World Service Click yeah, podcast. Yeah, BBC World, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll do a retake on that. I'd say go just go to the BBC World Service Click podcast uh, or you can follow me at Gareth M or at Bill T. That's an easy way of linking through to the podcast and giving us more Twitter followers. And of course, just do any podcatch. If you type a variation of those words into it, you won't have too much trouble finding us. Great. And we'll put a link to your your uh, show in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, make sure you go to the Project Cashmere website. If you haven't already, sign up for the email list and uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. And uh, just a, a parting thought on on the um, guys, we're going to have the to go benefit of listening to BBC and, and Sam, we've got to stop. Yep. Okay. All right. So um, and uh, thank you again, Project Cashmere listener, for joining us for another episode with. Uh, uh, Richard Lucas, co-host, and uh, our BBC guests uh, here. We'll see you uh, next time. Thank you for showing your support for innovation in Europe. Tell other innovators about the entrepreneurial movement by leaving a review in iTunes. For detailed show notes and community updates, visit projectkazimierz.com.